May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so we uh, said last week, who, who made the suggestion? It's one of the elders. You did. Yeah, let's study the Bible um, in Bible class. Just, and, and, I, and I mentioned that there is actually a place. We have catechism class, right? Um, there's also probably a place for like a Lutheran confessions class, right? Where we'd study the Lutheran confessions. But in Bible class, we should study the Bible. I agree. And uh, that might lead us into conversations about other things as the Bible intersects with life and, and the church. But that's what we'll do. So Micah... You all have different Bibles, which means I can't give you a page number. So you're just going to have to know where this is. Do you remember the books of the Bible in order? Not the Old Testament. Poorly catechized. Oops. I did try to make you memorize it. Well, children, there is this handy dandy thing at the front of the book called a table of contents. Yes, it does. Okay. But it's one of the minor prophets. So you see, comes after Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Mike. Where is it? Lamentations. We don't forget that too. Comes after Jonah, which is a really short book. So that's not a good landmark, is it? Um, in this Bible, it's two, th- three pages. Yeah. So after the Psalms, which is in the middle. Are you finding the page number for Micah? Micah, Micah. Just bear with the children, okay? If you would. They're a little slow in the morning. What? And, uh, what's that? Uh-huh. I'll put you right to sleep. <laughs> Well, and I mentioned this, I mentioned this in catechism um, on, what day is that? Did we have catechism? Wednesday? Yeah. That uh, as far as memorization goes, um, there's a way of putting things into memory, but there's also a way of preserving that memory, right? So we sometimes just think of memorization as like you do it once and it's done, but you know better, right? <laughs> um, maybe it's like riding a bike, but you have to go try riding a bike again, right? And the f- first time you do that, it's pretty awkward. Or like I mentioned, I was in Siberia, come back and then have to remember how to drive again. I've been gone, you know, two and a half weeks. You haven't driven for a while. You know, it's like a little, it's a little weird. So, yeah, you have to repeat it. So, yeah, you go through the books of the Bible regular. Micah, uh, Dale has a self-study Bible, You've got, or a Lutheran study Bible. That's a self-study Bible, right? And then a Lutheran study Bible. Those are helpful. They give you a lot of uh, introductory matters. So you, if you've already looked at those, you could probably tell me a thing or two. Micah is... I didn't review it yet. You haven't, okay. Uh, minor prophet at the time of, let's see, he mentioned some of the kings, Jehoiakim, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Yeah, that's right. And um, Hezekiah being a faithful king, and the others, not as much. Jehoiakim was okay, though, towards the end. Um, let's see... Uh, rain, he's at the same time as Isaiah. So we think we know Isaiah was a pretty monumental prophet along with Jeremiah. Um, but uh, Micah tells us where he's from. It's in there. And he seems to have heard some of Isaiah's preaching or Isaiah heard his preaching because they actually 
there's, there's a section in the book where it's a carbon copy of Isaiah. I think Micah 4, if I remember right. So you could probably see that. Um, the first couple of verses of Micah 4. Oh, yeah. I think that's Isaiah 2. Um, but it's also one that we hear at Christmas time, I think. Well, it depends on which. Isaiah 1 verse 1 and Hosea 1 verse 1. Oh, it's also in Hosea, who's another contemporary. Yeah. Yeah, but many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of God of Jacob. That's verse 2 of chapter 4. And he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. We hear echoes of that, if not direct quotes in Isaiah. Um, but Isaiah, I don't remember where Isaiah was. Probably in Jerusalem, right? Mostly. Uh, whereas Micah is out in a different part of the, of the country. But there are different inter- um, interests as well. So let's see, what else do you want to know? It's not a long book. I think last week I mentioned Advent um, or Christmas time is the time we hear it because who prophesies? Well, Micah prophesies uniquely about what in regards to Jesus? Bethlehem. Yeah, Bethlehem, right? So where is that? Chapter 5? So I'm giving you just an overview to start because that way you kind of have an idea of what we're doing here. Oh, yeah, look at that. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of... I'm reading this King James Version because I too did not bring a Bible. Uh, Out of these shall come forth unto me that is to... It's hard to read this. That is to be ruler of Israel, whose going forth had been from of old, of everlasting. Okay. So, yeah, so so it is uh, important for us and understanding who Jesus is. So Micah can be a little harsh, especially um, towards the beginning, and his prophecy. And prophecy, by the way, means, how would you define that? What do prophets speak? One is to tell the future. Yeah, so we use that most commonly, right? To be prophetic is to speak of what is to come. Uh, But I think it's broader than that. Yeah, they're really the preachers of the Old Testament. Um, They're the ones who are crying out in the wilderness like John, who's the last prophet, John the Baptist. So so the prophetic office um, is assumed into what we now call the apostolic office, or the office of pastor, preacher. Uh, So we do have prophets now, but uh, I can only speak of the things that the Lord has shown me, right? As far as the future, and what has he shown me? He's shown, same thing he's shown you in the scriptures. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. He will raise you and all the dead and give unto you and all believers eternal life. Right? So, I mean, that's the future. And that's, so that's prophecy, isn't it? And you say, well, I've heard that before. Okay, but it's still, it's still God's word speaking of the future. Right? Okay. By the way, if you have any questions, just interrupt me. Um, some, sometimes you mentioned the study Bible or I mentioned the study Bible um, it's kind of an uneven book have you noticed that as you use it sometimes the commentary is better and other times it seems a little weaker uh, maybe that's me being a, supposedly a Bible scholar right, <laughs> trained to be uh, but the, the prophets at least in, that, in those, both of those both the self-study and the Lutheran study Bible are pretty good because they depend upon Luther, um, who is really a, a profound Old Testament scholar. 
Um, he had read not only the, the scriptures themselves in Hebrew, but also um, knew the Jewish commentary on the scriptures. So he could in, intersect with that, although that's not Christian, it still understands. But the, the thing that Luther does that's unique, and I think we want to do, is always ask, how does this prophecy, this preaching, how does it teach us of Jesus? You know? um, and sometimes, some Old Testament people, um, including those who teach at the seminary, uh, only say that the scripture, the Old Testament speaks of Jesus when it directly is quoted in the New Testament, right? So we mentioned Micah 5 being quoted by Matthew in chapter 2. So obviously that's of Jesus. But what else can we hear of Jesus in this text? Uh, I'm going to point out one, actually, since we're talking about it. Chapter 6. And I don't know, probably you haven't heard these. Maybe you have. Um, If you're older, you might remember it from Lutheran hymnal. It's in Lutheran service book, too. So there's a time in the church that we use um, the words of prophet here. Yeah, you don't, don't spoil it. Don't spoil it. We've got to read it first. <laughs> he knows. I've got to find a better translation. I can't use this King James because it's going to... I feel like I, I have to put a different head on. It's beautiful, but I can't get my head around it. Uh, I use New King James. Speaking of translation... Yeah, go ahead. Um, just recently, I saw something, I guess it was on Facebook, you know, people put a lot of stuff on. And they were comparing the new international version with the King James version. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anybody see that? Where you see the new international version left off part of a verse that's in the King James version. Mm-hmm. This happens frequently. Um, and it was a pretty important part. Well, okay, so hmm, Bible translations. Um, hold that thought. Let me give you Micah 6 bit, and then we'll come back to that, because it is important. So hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. This is the Lord speaking to Micah. Hear you, mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has had a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. So now this is the Lord's words of contention with Israel, if you like, if you want to use that language. O my people, what have I done to you? In what have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage, and I sent you before Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people. And then there's more, and there's more. Ethan knows where this is from. Anybody else recognize that? There's a time in the church here you hear those words, or you might have. You recognize them? Okay, this is part, this is part of uh, the Good Friday liturgy. So on Good Friday, there's a section called the Reproaches. Have you heard of these? I don't know if you've used them. We haven't gotten, yes, we have elders here. We haven't gotten to uh, talking about Holy Week and what that looks like. You know, part of, part of being a pastor, I said it's like, it's, like, um, it's like moving into a new house and you just open the box and you find out what's inside each box when you get to it. <laughs> Unless you need to look for a specific box and hopefully it's labeled. Um, in this case, we're worried more right now about Christmas and Advent and Christmas. But um, Good Friday, there's a couple different services that are commonplace. Um, but the old one, there was an old one called the Trey Or, the three hour. I know there's probably one of those around. Who does that one? I think First Emmanuel. First Emmanuel, yeah. I'm sure Trinity in the city maybe in Sheboygan did that. So, or maybe not, maybe they do a different one. Um, that's, 
that's kind of a more still a it's a medieval tradition that Lutherans brought back in the 40s and 50s. Um, but there was an older service called the Chiefs. We now call it the Chiefs service, but um, it was the Good Friday liturgy. Yeah. What's the service called Tenebrae? Now Tenebrae is a uh, another medieval service that mostly Lutherans. Um, that was that was brought into Lutheran practice again around the time of the Lutheran hymnal, so the 40s, 50s. It's yeah, it's a it's a service of darkness, of candlelight darkness. Um, historically, you would hear psalms read and and readings and extinguish candles until it was dark, uh, and they would do in some parts of Europe and during the medieval period they would use that every every night during Holy Week, um, and then. It may even been later. You'd have to look at your histories. I don't know if we can go back and look at bulletins that far back to see when this congregation started celebrating Tenebrae. But it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been until the second half of the 20th century, maybe even later than that. So that was that was something that was brought into the Lutheran Church later on that had been set aside during the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would make sense. That would make sense because he was here. Eighties, yeah, yeah, all sorts of innovation that happened in the eighties. I think people maybe just got a little bored, you know. So we tried to try some new things, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but we don't often know where it came from and you know the tradition of it. Uh, but the chief service, and you don't have this in your hymnal. It's unique to Good Friday. Uh, is primarily readings from John. The Gospel of John, which is for Good Friday, whereas you would hear Matthew on the Sunday previous and Mark and Luke maybe during the week. Um, John is also the usually the chief reading on Monday Thursday. But on Good Friday, hear hear the Passion according to Saint John. Um, like at the time of J. S. Bach, they he had cantatas for that, where um, or oratorios actually it's be three cantatas, so it would be an oratorio then is what it's called, where you had all these characters. You know the the bass singing Jesus, you know his words, and and part of that those readings then is a section called the reproaches. And I should just go in and get the altar book so you can hear it. But um, it's a call and response with Jesus reproaching you, you know, which means to correct or admonish, and then your response to him. Um, and it's all drawn from different. Prophets. So there's a section from Isaiah, Jeremiah, and, and, and Micah. Micah is the second one, I think. And then you respond, um, you know, in repentance to what he is saying. And then uh, traditionally you would sing a stanza of Lamb of God, pure and holy, or just the first stanza, and just repeat that. It's really a beautiful liturgy. Um, and when we get to talking about Holy Week, it'd be one to talk about. Uh, it fits for the afternoon, especially at the, you know, the hour of Jesus' death. So, so actually there's a place for Micah to come into the life of the church where he, he actually is being a prophet speaking Jesus' own words of correction to us. Pretty neat, right? Um, maybe that brings up a whole other conversation about where is Jesus in the Old Testament? And the answer would be... Yeah, all over the place. Thank you, Ethan. Uh, everywhere, everywhere. Uh, I mean, even from the beginning, right? And God said, what did he say? Let there be. But 
more abstractly, what, it, what is he saying? Well, he does say that too. Good. Yeah, let us make man in our own image, he says later on. No, I was thinking more abstractly. He speaks words. Yeah, and who is, according to John, the beginning of the Gospel of John, another creation account. In the beginning was the word, word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In him was life, and he was the light of men. Right? So the Father speaks, and then hovering over the face of the deep is the breath of God, which is... Another name for the Holy Spirit, yeah. So even from the beginning, there's Jesus at work. And uh, some would argue that any time that God reveals himself uh, to his people or leads his people, it's Christ doing that. Even the angel of the Lord going before the armies, uh, being Christ. But uh, that one's maybe a little bit more of a stretch, <laughs> right? Uh, but, but uh, I mean, even the, think about the Psalms. I mean, these are his own words. What does he pray at the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is Psalm. Thank you, Ethan. He's my. He's spoiled. Well, he's played these. Ser- he's played the services. He's heard it enough times. Yeah, Psalm twenty-two, also Good Friday. Um, we hear that on Good Friday. Well, he in the Gospels it just says he, he said, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" I don't think it's too much speculation to say that he kept praying the Psalm. He kept going. It wasn't just the beginning. The first words. Those were just the. Right, that's the, what do you want to say, the trigger. No, that's not maybe the right word. You know, it's the little catchphrase in the gospel to indicate that he prayed that psalm, right? Because if you know the psalm by heart, you would, then you know, hey, my God, my God, and you're like, oh, you just keep going in your head, right? Uh, what'd be another, there's another psalm he prays from the cross. Uh, it's Psalm 130, but I can't remember what the, what the words are, right? So there he is praying the psalms. The psalms that are, are his word, there are words that sometimes prophecy of him directly, other times are um, words of the Father regards to him. I think it's Psalm 130. Mm, nope, it's not Psalm 130. Maybe 131. I don't know. It's somewhere in there. Oh, no. This is the problem when you just have ideas and you don't have notes. Then, uh, like, where did that come from? This is when the Google helps you quite a bit. You just, you just ask the Google, what is, what is, what is that? Okay, see that. You know which one I'm talking about? Yeah. Psalm, what? Yeah, oh yeah, that's right. That's right. We're speaking of him. They, that's, also Psalm 20, that's also Psalm 22, where they divided his clothing. For his clothing, they cast lots. That's also in Psalm 22. So you'll hear Psalm 22 on Good Friday because um, it, it really, in a very prophetic way, tells you the whole thing. All right. Well, there is another psalm that he prayed. I can't remember all the words he says from the cross. That's what I'm going through in my head. And then which gospels? There's seven last words, but you have to look at all four gospels to get them all together. All right. Back to Micah. Sorry. Questions so far? Mm-hmm. It's here in Micah, and, and so often in the Old Testament, sounds all over. Um, where God talks about bringing the people out of Egypt. Ah, yeah. And that's a theme that's has an immediate meaning and a future meaning. Right. Yeah, so um, this is the, one of the aspects of prophecy that's worth mentioning, actually which is that there may be a direct fulfillment of a prophecy, 
But then the scriptures will later expand the idea of that immediate event to be a much bigger, if you like, metaphor, right? So being brought out of the land of Egypt is true of the, the nation of Israel, right? That we're in um, the Hebrews, that we're in the land of Goshen and then, um, then come under oppression under Pharaoh, right? And then he draws them out. God draws them out. Um, it's fulfilled in Christ's own life, of course, as he has to flee the promised land and go down into Egypt for safety, which is ironic, isn't it? <laughs> but that's a lot like Joseph and, and his family who are fleeing um, you know, the famine in the promised land, and that's how they end up in Egypt. Um, Joseph, of course, because his brothers want his coat, and da, 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 or they're jealous. But, but eventually the people are drawn into Egypt right, as a way of saving them because Joseph had the, store, the storehouses full of grain right, that the Lord had shown him um, uh, for their benefit. So anyway, um, Jesus himself goes down into Egypt and is, out of Egypt I have called my son is, this, is the psalm. And there he is. He's, he's called out of Egypt. Uh, and then uh, we, usually, we use it metaphorically, too, to speak. Um, think of Luther. I mean, he, he, call, he thinks of Egypt in, in terms of like the land of sin and death and that Pharaoh is a type of the devil, right? And uh, that's in the New Testament, too, but where it's not coming to me. So it's used even in a bigger sense that you have in Egypt and that you are being, tra- uh, what do you want to say, translated or, or being taken from the land of sin and death and the devil, which this might even be Egypt, exile. I think, oh, it was the hymn we sang at the installation, Lord have mercy, right? Or did we sing that last week? Are we singing that today? It all blurs together. And then, then there's a fourth reading also. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Which is uh, pertaining to us, coming from the, our Israel, Mm. To the eternal rest. Oh, right. To, to the promised land. Yeah, going up to the going up to the mountain, Mount Zion, which would be, you know, physically it would have been the Temple Mount, but for us it's the heavenly Jerusalem. That's right. Yeah. So lots of ways that the, the scripture then speaks. Um, the word, the English word, is uh, multivalent. Who's this? English? Multivalent. <laughs> have you heard that? What is a valence? Do you want to? Do you know what a valence is? Yeah, yeah it's a... It's a covering on top of the window. Right, so if it's multivalent, think of it like an onion, right, with, with its layers of skin. Yeah, so there's multiple levels of meaning. You could say double meaning. Double meaning, or triple, or quadruple, or... Yeah. Multi-meaning. Cassie. So I'm curious if that concept is, well, um, do we agree on that as friends? Um, I'm just remembering, like, when I had the Old Testament, uh-huh. Jackson, yeah. and, like, the... Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, I had Dr. Jastrom as well okay. at, at Concordia Chicago before he went to Mequon. So we have a lot of things in common that way. Um, he, yeah, Dr. Jastrom is of, a, of the school that's called, sometimes called the rectilinear school. Oh, okay. um, and at, I mentioned this at Fort Wayne Seminary. There were Old Testament people that were more in understanding that, yes, there's a clear intended meaning, but then there are other levels of meaning that are intended as well. Okay. Um, which is not rectilinear. Rectilinear would say only direct prophecies relate to Christ. The others are, there's immediate context that's the intent. And I, I don't think they're entirely wrong. Sometimes we talk, 
so abstractly, like we make the meaning all metaphorical, as even to say that it didn't actually even happen, or, or it was just there were just words in search of meaning. Um, but especially with the Old Testament, so much of it is historical, and it's contextual. So that that's where like Dr. Jastrom is really helpful to say, no, let, let's first pay very close attention to the immediate context and the way that those words would be received by the people who heard them then. Um, and, and that's the original intended meaning. It doesn't mean that there's not a broader meaning now, I would say, but um, let's not lose sight of actually why that word was given. I, one example um, is, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And you hear those words and you say, Well, who is that? It's Mary, and it's the promise of Jesus, right? That's from Isaiah 6. Um, but it's a pro- prophecy given to Ahaz, and the word, the word um, is, in Greek, it's gunais. I don't remember what it is in, in Hebrew. But it can mean virgin, or it can just mean young woman will conceive and bear a son. And so I, scholars uh, like Dr. Jastrom would say, well, actually that promise was fulfilled for, by Ahaz through whatever woman, I can't remember. You know, there was a child born to a young woman and fulfilled it in a kind of, in a, in a short-term kind of way for Ahaz. But clearly, the New Testament then says, no, that actually was a promise of Christ. Well, that would make the Old Testament simply history for us. Rather than Sometimes, yeah. In living, uh, well, but that's not fair to Dr. Jastrom because Chris, Christocentric, yeah. that, they all, that it still is all leading to Christ. But maybe in the sense of, instead of direct, there's direct prophecy, but then there's also typological things. So, you know what a type is, a tupos in Greek? A type is a, um, we might use the word analogy. Um, so it's a person or a figure or an event that's, in an, that's, that's teaching you about even a bigger event or a similar event later on. So we mentioned the deliverance from Egypt is a type of your save, being saved through washing of water and word into God's kingdom, the promised land. Your washing of water and word is baptism. For them, it was through the Red Sea and the River Jordan, Right. So, yeah. I, I feel there's very few things in the Old Testament that don't pertain to us. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. Know, like just the flood, for instance. Mm, sure. Uh, God destroying the, the whole world except for, for those who believe. Eight souls and all. What happened at the end times, same thing. Yeah. Yeah, and you remember, uh, well, I don't know if you know this. When was the last time you had a public baptism? We had one after church last week, but. A baptism in church? You, do you use the right out of the book? Okay. So there's a prayer in the book. Oh, look, the reproaches are in the hymnal. Are they? Well, see, they, they, they change things every once in a while. And uh, this was, of course, now 10 years ago. But hmm. no, that's not the reproaches. Those are the suffrages. That's a little different. Regardless. Uh, baptism. Okay. There's a prayer. Let us pray, Almighty and Eternal God, according to your strict judgment, you condemned the unbelieving world through the flood. You remember this? Yeah. Yet according to your great mercy, you preserved believing Noah and his family, eight souls and all. And then again, you drowned hard-hearted Pharaoh and all his hosts in the Red Sea, and yet led your people Israel through the water on dry ground. And this is Luther's words, because this is Luther's prayer. Foreshadowing this washing of your holy baptism. So you see how you use both the flood and the drowning of Pharaoh and saving of, peop- of the people um, as a picture of baptism. 
And he does, it, he does it again. Through the baptism in the Jordan of your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, you sanctified and instituted all waters to be a blessed flood and a lavish washing away of sin. Meaning the water doesn't matter, actually. I mean, it does, but there's water, but it doesn't matter where the water came from, right? So, so that's Luther. And there's more to the prayer, but, but that, that idea of the story of the Old Testament being really your story, uh, if you wanted to summarize the Old Testament, the way you, you would say it is it's all about death and resurrection from the beginning. Um, I mean, even the promise given to Eve or, or the curse against the serpent, it's both. Curse against the serpent promised to Eve uh, is one of, a, of a, a son who will crush the serpent's head. And yes, he will die because he will be bitten, uh, but he will live. So that's helpful. And that will help us as we approach Micah, I think, too, to understand what prophecy is. Uh, now, I, let's see, what do we want to do next? Maybe, uh, before we read, how about you hear a little bit of what Luther has to say? Because remember, Luther is an Old Testament scholar. So I'm just going to read it for you. Um, but it'll be a helpful introduction. And this is what the, I checked. This is what the Concordia Study Bible, or Lutheran Study Bible uses for most of its information there. You okay? Okay. When the destruction of the Jewish people was imminent, when the new age and kingdom, namely Christ, were coming, God sent many great prophets to cry out and lament about the coming destruction of the entire people, so that at least some who heard the preaching of the threatening evil might believe, be converted, and thus converted be saved. It, so this is preaching of law for the sake of Christ, right? Which is gospel. That's what Luther's saying. In the same way, they might delay that terrible and wretched destruction. Thus, at the same time, prophesied Amos, uh, whom I, Luther, regard as the first, Hosea, who must be counted after Amos, and Micah. And we scholars today still agree. Amos, uh, Hosea, and Micah are contemporary. Isaiah also prophesied at the same time, uh, although he would have been the last of these. Now, there's more to be said. Now, all of them prophesied about the destruction of the old people and the bringing in of a new people, about the abolition of the external kingdom and the establishment of a new spiritual kingdom which would happen through Christ. You see, when the physical kingdom ended, the spiritual kingdom of Christ succeeded it. It was impossible for the eternal kingdom of the flesh to stand along with the spiritual kingdom. Therefore, the external kingdom had to be abolished. That's just Judah and Israel, right? The nations. Um, the external kingdom had to be abolished, and that was accomplished through, by the miraculous counsel of God. I think it's funny. Sending foreign nations to come destroy you, that's the miraculous counsel of God. That's on. Uh, when he caused his people to be carried off into captivity, a people who were boasting smugly about their external kingdom and their external righteousness. And yet, after the dispersion, Massive though it was, God Almighty preserved for himself a remnant of the people, which he caused to be brought back from both sides, from both Israel and from Judah. Of those remnants saved, nevertheless, the greater part was numbered from Judah rather than from Israel, in order that there might be some in whom the new kingdom might begin. After all, there had been a promise that Christ would be born of these people and that from them, from the line, you know, the line of Judah, the Lion of Judah, right? There, uh, where do we say? They've come forth the Savior in the new word, 
of the new kingdom. Therefore, in order that God might stand on his promises, he saved some, although very few, among whom he might present what he had promised and might be found faithful or truthful. The prophet Micah thus was sent to declare that the destruction of the entire people was imminent, but all the prophets cried out in vain. The people didn't listen, right? So you see what Luther is doing there um, is, you know, he's, he's saying that Micah is, is a, a Christian preacher, effectively, who's preaching death and destruction and the imminent end of the world, if you like, which you're going to hear the next couple of weeks in church <laughs> as we ramp up towards the end of the church here. Um, but not, not, for that, not for the sake of just cursing people, right, or leaving them in their sin and despair but for the sake of Christ, right? They would repent and believe. Um, but one of Micah's themes, which Luther picks up on well there, is who believes? What, is he, what was the word? Start with an R. Remnant. Yeah, remnant, right? So that's the leftover carpet that uh, Karen left in the house for us. <laughs> you know, the little, the little squares, you know, that was left over, right? And that's all that's left is just that, those little bits, Right? Um, that's not exactly an encouraging word, is it? Yeah, go ahead. Well, I'm just referring once again to, the, <clears throat> to an incident in the Old Testament that pictures that same thing, which is the flood. Mm-hmm. Right, eight souls. Saved. Yeah, eight souls. Again, uh, there was a remnant only from Assyria and Babylonia that was saved. So on the one hand, uh, it's not really all that encouraging because we would like to think of the church as being comprehensive and expanding out throughout the whole world and many being saved. Um, like we talked about with the boards on uh, Wednesday, you know, we'd like something like Pentecost where, you know, Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000 souls are, are converted and are baptized, you know. This is like a, um, in an American context, this is a revival, right? Uh, and then we hear somebody like Micah where it's like, no, they come preaching um, sin for the sake of repentance uh, and belief in, in Christ. And only a few people believe, you know, which uh, is also something I should probably read for the boards or maybe for the council, right? Is that we don't have a promise that says, yes, he's always going to grant this exponential growth. It's going to be like Pentecost. In other places, he, he, he preserves a remnant, a, a small number of people, right, that are faithful. And that's just as much his will as the big expansive church, right? So we, we, there's a way that we can idolize either Hmm. So we can idolize the big church that we want, to, we want to be a big church and that's what it means. That's how we would know that God loves us and that he really you know, endorses what we're doing. Uh, which may be true, actually. You know, there's Lutheran churches that are large, right? Uh, that are faithful. But then, on the flip side, you can also idolize your small church where you can say, well, look at us. The reason we're so small is because we're so faithful and nobody else can stand us, you know? Because we're so we're so faithful, and they don't like the true God, you know, truth of God's word, or something like that. And actually, um, God reproaches people like that. Well, a good example would be the prophet Elijah. Remember when he's hiding out in the cave? Yeah, and he's like, "I'm the only one left. I'm the only faithful person in Israel." And what does God say in response? The still small voice. But what's the voice say? Oh, you know what? There's three thousand or five thousand. I think it's five thousand. There's 5,000 other faithful people in Israel. You're an idiot. You, know, you just don't know them. You know? 
So, there, so that's the danger. You don't want to, either way, it's a different kind of pride, right? Either pride in, in hugeness or pride in, in smallness. Um, whatever, whatever the Lord accomplishes through his prophet or through his people here, um, we give God the credit, whether it be growth or it be um, actually, you know, that he diminishes it to a remnant. Um, either way, we, we give God the thanks and we ask his will be done, right? So that's, the, that's kind of the critique of, I guess, what in the 80s, we're talking about the 80s, called church, the church growth movement. Do you remember that? Because it said that only growth, growth is the only indication of God's favor, basically. Not small. And actually, numbers don't really matter. It's faithfulness of the people that matters. You know, we don't need warm people. You know, are people in the pew keeping the church warm, even though it's, it was kind of chilly in there this morning? Yeah. Yeah. All right, so that's, that's a little bit of Luther. Um, I could keep reading, actually. This is his preface, because he gives you some historic context. Would you like to hear that? All right, all right, let's do that. All right, today, through God, we have received the, go- the sound gospel in rich measure. We, too, must have no doubt that some great calamity and change of all things threaten us. So for Luther, that was, I don't know, he thought the world was ending. And that's how catastrophic it was for him. I, maybe we think that too, <laughs> you know, Chicken Little. It's falling. Uh, because of His goodness, God warns, Almighty warns us, just as He warned the Jews with many prophets and an abundance of words. He calls us to repent, but just as they held all things in great contempt, so also do we. <laughs> we don't listen either. That's His point. After all, our princes rage against the gospel and its preachers. They persecute its preachers, arrest them, throw them into prison, and kill them. All right, we're not having that happen yet. It does happen in other countries, though. There have been more Christians martyred for the faith in the last hundred years than in throughout the whole history of the world. Best guess, but as far as the numbers go. Uh, we just forget about it. Think of, like, um, well, I mentioned Russia. I mentioned the, the Soviet oppression of, of Christians, apart from the, ortho, the Russian Orthodox who collaborated with the Russians. The same thing happening to um, some Christians in Germany, um, but especially China would be a big one. What was his name? Mao Zedong or whatever. Is that right? Or, and then Pol Pot. Where was Pol Pot? Thailand. Thailand. Again, martyrdom of Christians there. Yeah. So best guess on numbers. That's all over the world. It is. Yeah, it's happening in Africa where, where Christianity is seeing great growth. The people are being oppressed. Islam religion is, you know, killing Christians. Yeah. 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 And there was just a shooting in, I think, Nigeria maybe a week ago. I don't know. It's hard to keep track of them all. Wasn't it that um, shooting in Colorado where hmm. he asked the student if they were a Christian? Really? That was Columbine. That was Columbine? Okay. Maybe you don't remember that one. No, I do remember Columbine. But, uh, I mean, that's. Yeah, it's. it's um, Maybe we're a little blind to it, um, but it's right across our border uh, in Canada, for example. You know, a lot of what we would call faithful Christian preaching is now considered hate speech there. So you will be imprisoned for it. Yeah. Isn't that something? So where was I? Oh, yes. Even the bishops whose responsibility it is to promote the gospel persecute them very much and confirm wickedness against the word of God. This is Luther's own experience. He's projecting a little bit, (laughs) but it's true. So what happened to the Jews when they despised the word is undoubtedly going to happen also to us when we despise it. 
Okay. So, so that's why, how the word is appropriate for us, too. Well, here's what happens um, if you fail to heed God's word. In general, the prophet Micah discusses the same thing in his prophecy as Hosea does in his. There's actually a direct quote between the two of them as well. You mentioned that, right? There's the quote of Isaiah, or Micah and Isaiah have the same section, but I think Hosea does. Too. There's another section with Hosea. Chapter 1? Yeah. Um, where was he? They both saw so many prophets and such a complete expression of the word sent in vain. They saw so many prophets despised and in fact killed that they foretold that both kingdoms would be destroyed. So both Judah and Israel. Which went into exile first, by the way? Israel or Judah? Which one went? Went into exile. Yeah, Assyrians took, the, took Israel, right? And then later Babylonians took Judah. Yeah. Uh, where were we? Yes. Yet, both would be destroyed. Yet, there was a clear promise of God that the kingdom of David would be an external kingdom, that no leader would be taken away from the throne of David until the Messiah would come. This pro- the promise says this openly. In appearance, this certainly was contrary to the prophets. So, it didn't appear to be the case. Who kept threatening and prophesying that both kingdoms would be ruined. Even the wicked people of Judah kept pressing the prophets with these prophecies about the kingdom of Judah. And then he gives a parenthetical note. Our people do not have a clear word of this sort with which they could oppose the gospel like the Jews did. So, just no. Yet, God miraculously kept his promise. That is preserving the king, a king for David, right? David's son. Um, so that he provided both kingdoms with a very wretched destruction. But he was not unaware of his promise, for the kingdom did not disappear completely. King Jehoiakim, who was carried off to Babylon and put into prison, nevertheless was saved, eternally saved, faithful, died faithful. He was finally honored and elevated above all the kings of Babylon as the sacred histories have it. Uh, This flesh, however, does not notice that God thus reveals in one man what he had promised. This is God's way. Thus also in Romans 11.1, 1, Paul proves that God did not reject his people and says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, etc. A special part of that otherwise numberless people was saved. Isaiah 2 says in Isaiah 10.22, For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. All right, questions so far? I'm reading a lot, so... Let's get your attention. Okay, good. Therefore, oh no, excuse me. The Jews, however, understood these promises in a different way. Therefore, they did not accept the prophecy of Hosea, Micah, and the other prophets that both kingdoms would be destroyed. Because they only thought, as he said in his very beginning, of an external kingdom, like an earthly kingdom, we would say, right? Not this heavenly spiritual kingdom that actually transcends time and place, right? And isn't it begins in, in the house of David in, in a town called Bethlehem, as Micah tells us. Um, but, it, but then Jesus himself says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, I would have sent soldiers to hack and slash. All right. Um, we have no such word. Our people have no such word, though they boast that they are the church which God is not going to forsake. No harm will befall us. There's always a danger when a church says that. <laughs> What do you mean no harm will befall you? If you're faithful, he is faithful, right? Um, but if you choose not to 
hear God's word or study God's word because you'd rather study something else, uh, that's a problem. Uh, and there is a consequence. But let them look to the example of the Jews. Let them be frightened and cease being confident. God will be able to save his church here and there throughout the world, one in one city and another in another. But in the meantime, all the princes, the pope and all the bishops will perish. This is just the way he miraculously saved the kingdom of Judah, although almost the entire kingdom was wiped out. So he preserved the remnant, even as they were in exile in Babylon, right? Yeah, that's what he's saying. Um, Thus God acts in a miraculous fashion so that the wicked are ashamed and blinded and die. In this way, he sometimes acts so that the prophets appear completely contrary to him. (laughs) This appears very clearly in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who are intense, to put it lightly. You read Jeremiah? There's, there's some crystal, you know, some gospel-y moments in Jeremiah, but for the most part, it's, you know, doom and gloom. He's the, what do we call him, fire and brimstone preacher, right? That's what they used to call him. Hmm. Um, Jeremiah prophesies about Zedekiah, king of Judah, and says that it will come to pass that Zedekiah will be captured and surrendered into the hands of the king of Chaldeans, Babylon. Then the prophet adds, Jeremiah 32, and he shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye, and they shall take Zedekiah to Babylon. So does Ezekiel in Ezekiel 12. We'll skip a little bit. And this is also the way that Micah prophesies. Ezekiel had foretold that the king would not see the land, and indeed he was correct, because they tore out his eyes before he was taken into Babylon. Did you know that? Yeah. That's a pretty vicious thing to do to the king. Uh, it's like Game of Thrones, if you've ever watched the show. I don't suggest it, but if you have. Um, Ezekiel, the Torah his eyes. Jeremiah had foretold that Zedekiah would see the eyes of the king of Babylon, but he too was correct because before he was brought before, the, or before after he was brought to the king, then his eyes were put out. So, you know. So this is the thing with prophecy. Sometimes people are having trouble reconciling it, and that's what Luther is dealing with here. He's like, well, how could one prophet say his eyes were put out and he didn't see Babylon, and then the other guy says he did? Well, this is how it's understood. And so then people get hung up on the contradiction and they miss the point. Um, there was a famous book back in the 40s called Bible Contradictions by, um, I think, Johann or Wilhelm, I can't remember, some German name. Arndt was his last name. He was a professor at St. Louis Seminary. Um, and that's exactly the problem. People get all hung up on the contradiction, seeming contradictions, and they miss the whole point of the prophecy. Right? So that's another thing to be wary of. Um, but this is God's ways, God's way. If he wants to blind us, and so he acts against our presumptions when we are too smug, that's his, that's his thing. He can do that. All right, so there's Luther's introduction. How are we doing on time? I don't have a clock when I'm facing you, so. Oh, we just have a few minutes, okay. Um, why don't we, to, unless you have a question, why don't, oh, go ahead. Um, one of the most uh, well-known verses from Micah is uh, chapter 6, where we were in before. Yes. Um, I'm sure everybody recognizes verse 8 and 9. Verse 8. Ah, yeah. Because Jesus quotes this, doesn't he? I think. In math, in math Luke and Mark, maybe? Mm, I don't know. I'd have to look it up. He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice to love kindness and to walk humbly before your God, or with your God. What does your translation say? It's a little different. Can you read it? The actual version says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? 
Yeah, to act justly versus to do justice, they're not quite the same thing. And uh, maybe this is an important thing. I was going to have you just read chapter one, but <laughs> we haven't actually read it yet. We've given you some, I've given you an overview. Hopefully this will help you as we dig into the book. Um, but this is a theme throughout all the prophets, but it's here in Micah as well, of justice. And what is justice, right? Um, have you heard this term, social justice warriors, SJW? These are the, this is the more right-wing, politically-leaning uh, folks among us. This is describing the people who say that, um, like, you have to, or that we need to promote um, equal rights for LGBTQ plus people, right? And, and, we have, and that women are, are being oppressed and men are evil, patriarchal people. And that, so there's, you notice that this is a political theme. It was in the elections. It was a big part of the elections. Uh, the Democratic Party made it like part of their platform is that we're electing minorities, women, um, homosexual people. I don't know. There were other things, right? Oh, um, I said minorities. So yeah, so they made a big deal out of like African-American women and, and Native American women being elected, Muslim women as well. Um, there were two, I think, elected, the first two Muslim women for, um, for Congress. So... Um, that's under the social justice. So justice is to do the, that we need to do the right thing, right? And that people need equality and fair, there needs to be fairness. That's not exactly what God talks about when he says justice. It's, it's really a different thing. What it, it, it's related to another word, actually, has the same root in Greek and in Hebrew, which is righteousness. That's why I said do the right thing. So justice and righteousness are actually they're, they're um, what do you want to say? They're in the same word group. Cousins. Yeah, close cousins. Um, so if you are righteous, what does it mean? It means that you do justice, that you do the right thing, right? Um, but who defines what is right? That's the key. Who defines that? God does, yeah. Um, and who is right, actually, according to the Bible? No one is except for God, right? So the problem with saying, here's what we believe, and this is the social justice warrior movement thing. Um, this is what we know in our hearts is right for this world, that these things need to, these old patriarchal or whatever systems need to be torn down and we need to, we need to upside down everything because then everyone, um, then, then there's true justice and righteousness. Problem is, is that the idea of what is right is coming from us. And as the Bible tells us, we just read Romans chapters 1 and 2, um, which I'll quote in the sermon, actually. There, there is no one that is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? You've heard that. Uh, where, where Paul quotes, just, just keeps pulling psalms like, like a machine gun fire at and throwing them at you. Like, there's no way out of this. This is true. You cannot know what is just unless God tells you what is just and right. right? So when he's... A good example of this is when he... The, the way that the scriptures reveal, um, um, you know, ethics, how to live, which regards, you know, you would know them as the Ten Commandments. So, you know, property and family and government um, and even the church and how it's governed. Those things are revealed to you by God and tells you what is right. Even when your heart says, I'd rather do this or that. This is right. This is true. Does that follow? 
So when he says do righteousness or do justice, it's the same. That's what he means, is do what the Lord has given you to do or be who the Lord has given you to be. Uh, what else did he say there? Love kindness or what did yours say? Show mercy maybe? can't remember. Love mercy. Yeah, to love mercy, to love kindness. This is love your neighbor as yourself, right? The second command, the greatest command, the second part of it. And um, to walk humbly with your God, and that's how that happens. So the only way you can have faith toward God and love for a neighbor is actually to be with Jesus and walk with him, is to listen with him. Because Adam and Eve, Adam walked with God, and then after sin, what did he do? No longer walked with God. Where did he? What did he do? Hid. Yeah, he hid in the trees, right? Which I, it's, it just makes me laugh and smile because it's like, <laughs> what are you thinking? <laughs> it's like, but it's so it's so childish and yet it's so um, apropos, isn't it? That's what we do. We just we're just like children. Can I pose a question? Yeah. For, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, I've often wondered myself. Would it have been easier to be a believer in the Old Testament or oh. post? Mm-hmm. And, and as you think about it, think of some reasons why, one way or the other. Okay. Let's talk about next time. The, you know, we're talking about righteousness. What, what does it take to be righteous? And how easy is it to be righteous? Hmm. Uh, would it have been easier in the Old Testament before all the. Or easier 60 years ago? Right. Well, Which is a conversation people have. Easier question to answer then, yeah. Maybe, because you might know that context. But even then, you know. The devil was still around. Mm, yeah, that's true. And you, yeah, people were not all that different than what we'd like to think. So, all right. Yeah, that's a good question to kind of mull over. I'd like to do that. I actually have a lesson prepared for chapter one, so we'll do that. And we can belabor the book as much as you want, but... Um, the last class I taught, I told you I took like 16 weeks to cover like four verses or something. I don't remember what it was in Matthew. We spent a lot of time. Oh, it was like a chapter. Yeah, but it, you can do that. Um, but I thought maybe with you, it'd be better to do some of this broad overview. And then we can move through the book a little bit quicker and just see where it takes us. And uh, rather than me breaking down like every word and every place and telling you about everything, um, which is a way of getting lost in the weeds, right? All right. Let's close with prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, chapter one next time. By the way, the